street tonight. Genesis 3. Real quick uh, addendum here to the announcements. Uh, young adult Bible study, instead of meeting at Richard's house tomorrow, you're actually going to be out here at church at 6 o'clock. You guys are going to do uh, pizza and watch a movie, I believe. I believe you're going to be watching the Jesus movie. So that is tomorrow here at church, 6. Instead of over at Richard's house, if you got any questions about that, see Rich. All right, we're going to be starting out in Genesis 3 tonight. What we like to do here uh, the Wednesday before Easter is we like to do a stop in the study that we're going through and get a chance to really stop and analyze Christ's death on the cross. You know, and the truth is the fun stuff's always on Sunday. Sunrise service is always a fun service. You get to add that excitement of just retelling of the story of them going to the empty tomb and what did that mean and represent. And on Sunday morning, you get the blessing of that fun service and that joy of talking about Jesus and his resurrection and the victory. But here on Wednesday, before you can have the excitement of sunrise, before you have that joy of the resurrection, you've got to face the hard facts of Jesus' death and why he died and what that means and what that represents. So with that being said, we're taking a break from our study in Jeremiah. And we're going to look at a few different passages here on what got us to Jesus and his death on the cross. And we're going to start here in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is where everything goes downhill. This is the fall and temptation of man. This is where Adam and Eve sinned. And we know the story about that. They ate the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat. They brought sin into the world. Now, the first prophecy given in the Bible deals with the death of Jesus. Look at verse 14 of Genesis 3. And says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are the cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Right there, verse 15, first prophecy. That idea of her seed, her seed meaning Jesus, meaning the Messiah, will bruise the head of the serpent. It will crush him. But at the same time, the Messiah's heel will be bruised. That idea that there's some suffering that's going to have to happen here. That's the first prophecy in the Bible. So for thousands of years, it had already known that there was going to be some type of suffering here. Yes, sin would be defeated. We knew that. The serpent would be destroyed. We can see that. But the heel of the Messiah will be bruised. And so from this prophecy until it happened, 4,000 years passed. Knowing that this prophecy was going to happen. And then that what builds us up is this idea of the heel being bruised. Now, there's a little bit of a hint in this. Just a tiny little hint, and we can study it out and analyze it. And I think it's a kind of a fun thing to do. As we try to see here, go to, if you will, to Genesis 22. Genesis 22. Let's build on this. Because there's this word that kept coming back to me as I was kind of looking at this lesson and thinking about it. Genesis 22. First prophecy in the Bible is this idea of the Messiah was going to have to suffer. That's exactly what happened at his death on the cross. But you see here in Genesis 22 something really unique. Now, the story of Genesis 22 is a very famous uh, Sunday school story. It's where Abraham's going to offer up Isaac as a test to his faith. So what happens is, verse 5, it says, Abraham said to his young men, he brought some servants, he says, stay here with the donkey, the lad and I, that's his son Isaac, will go yonder and worship and we'll come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hands and a knife and the two of them together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? 
Now, you know where the story goes with this, but here's this picture. Abraham and Isaac are going up to offer a sacrifice. Now, Isaac at this time, if you study it out, is probably in his mid-20s. I don't know about you, but every time I used to hear the story, I used to imagine this young boy. And it's not a young boy, it's this young man. This is a young man that willfully allows himself to get tied. See, look at verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there, placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. As much faith as Abraham had, Isaac should get a little credit for this too. He willfully allowed this to happen. But before we get to that point of the sacrifice, we know what happens. Verse 10, Abraham's about to slay his child. God stops in verse 11. But look at verse 8. Actually, jump back to verse 7. Isaac has a great question. Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Verse 8. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. That phrase, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. I don't claim to be an expert on Hebrew in any way whatsoever, but some people I know that are very intelligent says, actually, that word for shouldn't be in there. It says, My son, God will provide himself the lamb. See, there's a foreshadowing right there. Genesis 3, first prophecy in the Bible. The Messiah will take care of sin and the serpent, but his heel is going to be bruised. And then in Genesis 22, we get this little hint. God's going to take care of the problem himself. Passage I just heard recently, Mark 10, verse 45. You don't need to turn there. It says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Think about that for a second. God takes the form of a human. He comes down to earth, and he never once asks to be served. He says, I'm going to serve other people. We go through most of our adult life, probably ever since we were born, I should say, with a very selfish mentality that it's my life and I deserve this. I don't know how many times in counseling I've heard people say, I've spent all my life taking care of others. I'm now going to focus on me. What a selfish attitude that is. Christianity is you put others before yourself. If anybody had any right to be served, it would have to be God himself that came down in the form of the man and said, you know what, I am God. But instead, he washed people's feet, he healed the sick, he served. And he served to the point of death on the cross. I mean, that's the day we're here to acknowledge and to commemorate is the idea of God came down in a form of a man and he himself provided the sacrifice. Now think about this for a second. He didn't do anything wrong. I mean, I know that's the simplistic fact of Christianity. God is perfect, so therefore it's the perfect sacrifice. But here's the problem. He's cleaning up a mess that we created. I just heard someone say the other day, and they said this phrase, said, fine, I'll do it. Now, have you ever said that? Think about that for a second. Fine, I'll do it. It's usually never said in a good way. It's almost always said in a frustrating way of you've asked for help, you've asked for something to be taken care of, you've been ignored, and you finally say, fine, I'll do it. Now think about that. That's exactly what God did. He said, fine, I'll do it. But he didn't say it with any animosity. He said, fine, I'll do it. I'll clean up the mess. I will offer myself up as the sacrifice for the sins of the world. He offered himself. Genesis 22, that little foreshadowing of he himself. Now let's build on this. Can you go with me to the New Testament, please? And let's go to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I just want to share with you three quick verses. Three quick verses here on this idea of Christ offering up himself. 1 Timothy chapter 2 is the first one I'm going to send you to. 
This idea of God offering up himself. Let's never forget that. As you're going to 1 Timothy chapter 2, I just want to read you a quick verse out of uh, Titus. Titus 2.14 says, He gave himself for us. He gave himself for us. That's what we're here to celebrate tonight. He gave himself for us. Fine, I'll do it. I'll take care of it. Because, see, we would still be waiting for this save salvation of sins. We, we can't take care of the sin problem. God had to do it. And the reason we're here tonight is to celebrate this idea of Christ doing it. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Pick it up here in verse uh, 3. It says right here that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Stop right there for a second. If you ever run into that person that uses this argument about God sending people to hell and all this other type of stuff. Verse 4, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He wants everybody to be saved. A verse we quote out here a lot, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. God has no joy in the death of the wicked. He wants everybody to be saved. Verse 5, there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Look at verse 6, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. That's why we're here tonight. Jesus gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. One translation is to be given at the right day. When was the right day? It was about 2,000 years ago. That's what we're here to celebrate. Now, I don't know why. And I'm not going to pretend to know why. But from the time the prophecy was given in Genesis 3 to the time Jesus died on the cross, there's 4,000 years of Old Testament history. Why wasn't the right time before then? I don't know. But the Lord knows that was the right time. So the first point we can learn here is Christ's death on the cross, verse 6, He gave Himself a ransom for all. That means He paid the price we couldn't pay, and it was done at the right time. The right time was 2,000 years ago, and that's what we're here to celebrate. The next passage we're going to use to build on this. Go to Galatians, please. Galatians. Genesis 3, there's a sin problem that we created. You're going to Galatians 1. Genesis 3, there's a sin problem we created. We can't fix that problem on our own. So God prophesies that the Messiah will come from the seed of Eve crush the head of the serpent, which he did, but yet his, bru his heel will be bruised, showing the suffering he'll go through. We see in Genesis 22, a foreshadowing of this, where God himself will provide the sacrifice to take care of sins. We see here in 1 Timothy 2, at the right time, he would send himself, which he did in the form of Jesus. And now what you have here in Galatians 1, let's see what happens. Verse 3 of Galatians 1. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself, there's our phrase again, gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. There's that phrase again. Gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from the present evil age. We are here tonight to celebrate and commemorate the fact that God gave himself. And why did he give us? Himself, verse 4, to save us from this present evil age. I just talked to someone not too long ago, and they were talking about God, their definition of God. And they said that they don't want to believe in God because when they look at the world today, that a God that has this type of world is not a God that they want to worship and serve. And I told them I agree with them 100%. If this world right now is the best that God can do. That's not the type of God I want to serve. 
See, this is not the best he can do because verse 4, this is a present evil age. This, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And I know we make that point a lot. But when you get frustrated at the world and the events going on and all the sin and destruction and filth, th- this is a present evil age. When you are frustrated at good things happening to bad people and bad things happening to good people, you're frustrated at kids getting sick, you're frustrated at loved ones getting hurt, this is a present evil age. So the reason Jesus died 2,000 years ago, according to verse 4, is to deliver us from this horrible, fallen world. God makes it clear in the Bible that we are not supposed to be emotionally or spiritually attached to this world. The Bible uses terms like we're a sojourner, passing through, our citizenship is in heaven. And this is what I notice. When I get too emotionally attached to this world... That's usually when I get spiritually frustrated. Because I get emotionally attached to events happening, and it it bothers me too much. Work brings you down. Health brings you down. Life brings you down. Be careful. You're a sojourner passing through. You know you have eternal health waiting in heaven. You know that this world will be destroyed with fire, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. You know that all the wrongs will be righted. You know truth will prevail. You know, according to verse 4, that Jesus himself will deliver you from this present evil age. And the reason that Jesus can deliver you from this present evil age is because 2,000 years ago he died on the cross for your sins. He gave himself as an offering. He fixed the problem that began in Genesis 3 himself. Fine, I'll do it. And not out of frustration, not out of anger, because there's no one else that could do it. He'll take care of it. Let's build on this. What happened here after he saved us from this present evil age? Go to Hebrews, please. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, please. Let's start right at the beginning. Hebrews 1, verse 1. God, who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of glory and the express image of His person, upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now think about that for a second. Verse 3, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now that word purge is, is an amazing word, and we don't use that enough in the English language. To purge, to completely push away, to completely be gone. I, I can't think of much in this world that we can purge. If you go into your house and you give it a good, solid cleaning, you will never be able to purge it of dirt. You will never be able to purge this world of viruses and bacteria. You you will never be able to do it. But this idea of Jesus completely emptying sin from us. Think about that for a second. The Bible says, as far as the east is from the west. What an amazing thing. An absolutely amazing thing. Put this all together. Genesis 3, we've created this huge problem. The sin problem. It's our fault. I mean, it's completely mankind's fault. We sinned. 
So the first prophecy is that God will clean it up, and the way he's going to clean it up is that the Messiah will be bruised. We see in Genesis 22, God provides himself the sacrifice. We see here in 1 Timothy that at the right time he'll take care of it, which was 2,000 years ago. We see in Galatians that he saves us from this present evil age. So when you go home today and you are frustrated by this world, you're frustrated by health, you're frustrated by stress, you're frustrated by anything... The reason Jesus died 2,000 years ago was to free you from this present evil age. And then not even that, we see here in Hebrews 1, he wants to purge our sins completely. And what's he do after he purges our sins, according to verse 3? He sat down. That's huge. That's why when he was on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. I heard a pastor say one time, it does not say to be continued. It's finished. It's over. And the problem is, as a Christian, sometimes I don't really accept the fact it's finished. I don't realize the full victory I have. Because, see, when Jesus says it's finished, he says it's done. There's nothing more that can be added to this idea of salvation. Nothing. Now, think about that for a second. When I first got saved, I'll be saved uh, 20 years this fall. When I first got saved, I completely understood that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I completely understood it, and I completely understood that it's by grace I'm saved and everything, but I also realized I probably need to do some good along with that just to, just to make sure it's all taken care of. It's finished. You know, Dawn and I are raising five perfect boys. Perfect boys. I haven't seen sin in them yet. And the thing is, as we're trying to raise these five perfect children, we're ingraining into them this idea of Jesus ingraining it into them. And if we go up and say, who loves you? And they say, daddy loves you. I say, well, who loves you more than daddy? God. What did Jesus do for you? He died on the cross for us. And I, we are, I'm not telling, stressing to you, ingraining this idea. To some of my kids still, you go up to them and say, how do you get to heaven? Jesus. That's how you get to heaven? Yeah, Jesus and also do good works. Now, those are the pastor's kids. They still in the mind, this idea of doing, and you try to stop and you say, no, there's no good you can do to inherit or earn salvation. It's God alone. It's Jesus alone. And what happens is even as believers that have walked with the Lord for years, if not decades, we still have this in the back of the mind. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but I'm going to, no, there's nothing to add. It is finished. You know why Jesus said it's finished? Because we'd screw it up again. I firmly believe that. He says, let salvation solely be me. The only fingerprints I have on salvation is I held the nails to put them on the cross. That's the only thing I did. The salvation was all Him. And what we're here tonight to do is to stop one day out of the year and say, because of my horrible, filthy evilness, and we talked about that on Sunday, Jesus died on the cross for me. Yes, we kind of want to skip this part and we want to go right to the empty tomb on sunrise and we want to go right to Easter on Sunday morning. But you can't have an empty tomb unless he died first. You can't have the resurrection unless he died first. And he can't talk about him dying unless you deal with the fact it was you and I that made him die. Our sin. He had to purge us of our sins. He had to save us from this present evil age. He had to do it at the right time. And he had to do it himself. Because there's nothing we could do. Absolutely nothing we could do. And I guess if the only thing you get out of this tonight is that concept of there's nothing you can do to take you one inch closer to heaven 
then you fully realize what Jesus Christ did on the cross. It was all Him. And that's why that phrase, starting in Genesis 22, and in Titus, and in Galatians, and in 1 Timothy, and in Hebrews, Himself. He had to do this Himself. And when you really realize what He did, and how we did nothing, it gives you a clearer, better understanding of why we're celebrating tonight. It's because of Him. It's all about Him and His death and what He did. Bob, if you want to go back and get the kids and, and bring them in. So, okay.